You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, March 4th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Peter Zion, political strategist and founder of Zion on Politics. Peter is also the author of the new book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. Peter, welcome. Congrats on the new book and how timely. We were just commenting that it could be the caption for this week. That's how it feels. Yeah, and, and we're just getting started on this particular uh, the circus. It's uh, there's a lot more coming just around the corner, which is which is ominous. Um, so so very quickly, uh, the market certainly sense that uh, I think, um, although very hard to kind of game out what's happening. We see uh, U.S. equities, which just closed uh, down across the board. Although it does look like they're going to close off their worst levels of the day. We have the U.S. Treasury around 1.73%, really caught between these Ukraine headlines and what was a really strong job report um, and an anticipation that might keep the Fed on track. Gold up 2%, uh, again, you know, benefiting from that safe haven. Cryptocurrency is interestingly down between 5 and 6% today. So, Peter, um, this is actually the, the fourth, I believe, book in, in a series that you have written um, supporting your thesis that the current world order is changing and that at, that we're entering a sort of maybe a new, more chaotic period. Before we jump into specifics, can you kind of give us an overview of your thinking? Of course. So until World War II, geography was what determined economic success. Uh, you had to have access to certain points. You had to fortify your borders in certain ways, like behind mountains. Uh, in the case of Russia specifically, uh, they've got nine gateways to their territories, and they've been invaded through them 50 times. So what Putin's trying to do right now is plug the gateways. Two of them, unfortunately, are on the other side of Ukraine. Now, when World War II ended, the United States told everyone that geography no longer exists. We're going to protect everyone. We're going to allow for trade among everyone. And that is what gave us free trade in the world that we know. But we did that to buy up an alliance to fight the Cold War. Cold War ended 30 years ago. We've been edging away ever since. And in the last eight presidential elections, we voted for the guy who wanted to move away from free trade and globalization. The exception, of course, is this last one where there was not a pro-free trader running. Mm. So that's kind of piece one. Piece two is demography. Everything that you do is determined by your age. When you're 20 years in your 30s, you're having kids. When you're 50s, you're saving for retirement. Well, the whole world has aged as we urbanized and industrialized under globalization. Well, 70 years from 70 years on, we now have a number of countries, Russia included, that has more people in their 60s than their 50s, than their 40s, than their 30s, and their teens. So the return to geography explains the why of what Russia's doing, and its collapsing demography explains the why now. If they don't do it now, they'll never be able to. Yeah, but but you know, closing off their borders, I mean, wh where was the threat of invasion? Who was invading? Today, today there isn't one. But like I said, they've been invaded 50 times, and they know if they don't plug those gaps now, they will lack the military to do it in the future. They're just, they're just preparing for the next 
major conflagration because they know next time they won't be able to fight a general war. So you reject the idea that this is some some sort of delusional idea of Putin's that, you know, for loss grandeur, you think he's making a, a calculated decision that they're vulnerable? He's a calculated decision. And all the rhetoric that he has used in the last week, he has used before. It's just been a while. Uh, he had some rather colorful things to say about the Chechens when he first became president back in the early 2000s. So... Does the so so you're you're you know sort of Russia the the Russia thinking around this aside you you think that global you are already of the idea that globalization the era of globalization was over that this era of free trade globalization maybe even this peace dividend if you can call that certainly doesn't feel like that if you're sitting in a war zone somewhere and there have been but but this this sort of like world war embroiled sort of uh, you know. Uh, idea of conflict. Um, we, we, we haven't had that in a while, but you feel like that's ending. Does Absolutely. this episode ex- change anything or accelerate anything for you? Actually, in my second book, The Absent Superpower, there's a whole chapter called The Twilight War on Russia doing exactly this, as well as the next five countries that he's going to invade, which I think we can look forward to later this year. So you don't think this will stop at Ukraine? No, absolutely not. He's not going to stop until he plugs all nine of the gateways. And even if he secures Ukraine totally, he still needs to move further. Moldova, Romania, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. He'll need parts or all of all of them. Does that seem like an achievable goal, given the performance we've seen of his military and the fact that sanctions are now tightening around him? Well, let's start with the military. We're on day eight. Uh... Nobody expected Ukraine to fall within a month. They did what they call some thunder runs, thinking they might get lucky on Kiev. That failed. They're now fighting this Russian style with heavy artillery until the city is leveled. They're going to do that over and over again. It's going to take them over a month. Uh, Probably no more than six, though. Then there'll be an insurgency. The Russians know how to deal with that as well. So from the Russian point of view, sure, this hasn't been all sunshine and chocolate, but it's kind of par for the course for how they fight wars. The sanctions did surprise him. The sanctions surprised me. I think the sanctions have surprised everyone. I don't think anyone thought the Europeans were going to get this stiff back so quickly. And he was certainly thinking that he was going to have more time and more flexibility. And I don't mean to suggest he's done. If Mm. you look at the pipeline infrastructure going from Russia to Europe, there are a couple of undersea pipelines that no one can disrupt, that you don't have to get insurance from. You don't have to worry about a shipper or a Ukrainian sapper. They're going to be the last ones to go. And the only way they'll go is if the Turks and the Germans directly sanction those projects. That's the only weak point they have. So we're going to be moving into an area here within a month where the Russians can directly and accurately go to Berlin and go to Ankara and say, look, we can leave the lights on for you, but everyone else is screwed. There's a price, of course. And that's making sure that NATO can't function. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
I mean, this. By the way, we've got some fantastic questions coming in, and I, I and I am going to get to them. So the, it's it's so hard to, I think, try, try to make investment decisions in this situation. But you know, there are people that are going to have to. Uh, Real Vision co-founder Raul Powell was tweeting today, and I think he really summed up some of the seismic shifts that are rippling through markets that are that that people are trying to. Um, you know, assign some probability to. And if we can pull the first one up, he had a Twitter Twitter thread. I'm sure many of our viewers saw it, but for those who didn't, um, the first one he said is the massive rise in food and energy prices have caused enormous tightening of financial conditions, along with the liquidity issues of deplatforming Russia. The 210 swap curve is at 15 basis points and will hit zero soon, showing how tight conditions really are. Raul believes that that a re- global recession is now likely. He goes on to say, and we're not going to put all the tweets up. We're just going to grab a, a couple. Um, Peter, do you agree with that assessment oh, based on what we're seeing? Global in the bag at this point. We're going to lose 5 million barrels per day of Earl's, Earl's crude within the next few weeks, and somewhere between 5 and 10 BCF of natural gas going to Europe. Uh, we're going to have a food crisis by the fourth quarter because the world's largest wheat exporter just invaded the fifth largest one. There isn't going to be any planting season in Ukraine this year. We have a phosphate fertilizer shortage because of what's going on in China. Because of natural gas prices, we now have a global nitrogen fertilizer shortage. And Russia and Belarus combined are the world's largest potash producers. So a lot of farmers the world over are not going to use fertilizer this year. So we'll have a collapse in yields. That is how a famine begins. Global wheat stores are less than five weeks of usage. Which is, you know, just haunting that we're talking about a, a famine, um, you know, it, it, which just two weeks ago, I think was unthinkable to people in, you know, especially in this region. Um, you know, commodities have been, they've seen the biggest move. It's the speed in which this is happening. They've seen one of their biggest moves on record this Conflict is happening on top of a, uh, as many have pointed out on the Real Vision platform this week, on top of a very stressed macro environment, uh, commodities that were already strained and surging and, and facing supply issues. Um, D. Smith and Jacob Shapiro were were talking about that, and like you, expressing particular concern about food supplies. Let's listen to the conversation they have. A clip from that. I mean, if we're going on here for more than four to eight weeks of this conflict, I, I guess it really depends how the conflict goes. Um, all of Ukraine's commercial ports are still closed. I believe it's been six or seven days now that they've been closed. As far as I know, also, Russia's not been letting commercial traffic in and out of the Black Sea. Uh, the Turks say they've closed the, the Bosporus to military ships. I don't know if that means commercial ships as well, but I know from some of the clients and partners that I talk to that it's very, very difficult to get ships right now and certainly in and out of the Black Sea. And that's so important because to your point, you know, 50% of Russia's exports go out through the Black Sea, 90% of their agricultural exports go out through the Black Sea. And just to not to go too doom and gloom, but let's say we are four weeks, you know, four weeks from now into this conflict. Um, that's exactly when the planting season is supposed to begin for the next for the next cycle of crops. So if Ukrainian farmers are not able to sow their barley and their corn and their sunflower and their wheat here. Um, at the end of March, early April, um, not not only then are we dealing with logistical disruptions that could theoretically be solved if there was some kind of arrangement, or even if the war is still going on, but they allow safe passage to just commercial vessels. But if you get to April and Ukrainian farmers can't get to their crops, now we're talking about when you come to July and August, you're actually talking about 
a shortage of supply in the market itself. And um, the the that'll hurt in Western economies, obviously, like we'll pay higher prices at restaurants than at the grocery store. But for countries like Turkey or Egypt or Saudi Arabia or Nigeria that depend on Russia and Ukraine for these wheat imports, I mean, that's the sort of stuff that sets off a political revolution. The Arab Spring was born in that kind of high food price thing. And I haven't even talked about energy prices yet. Because if let's say you don't get the Iran nuclear deal, the the civil war in Libya kicks off, and then nobody wants to buy Russian oil. I don't. I mean, is there an upper limit on how high oil can get? We haven't been in a situation like that um, at least in '73, and maybe that wasn't even the perfect analogy. So when you put it all together, um, if we're talking about multiple weeks here, um, we're probably not only are we looking at hyperinflation. I think we're probably looking at a pretty severe recession brought on by high high energy prices. And that full interview is on our website, out today on our website uh, for Essential Plus and Pro Tiers. Um, Peter, I want to pick up on that, and that's why I wanted to play it, because I think Jacob brings a really interesting point about not just higher prices, but this idea of shortages and shortages in places where it can't be absorbed. Well, it, it could turn to really um, serious social unrest, political issues. Marvin um, on the exchange is asking, what is the potential for food riots as the first part of his question? He doesn't specify where, but can you pick up on that? I mean, how do you see this playing out? Conservatively, between what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and what's going on in the fertilizer markets, the price of wheat between now and the end of year of the year is going to quadruple. Uh, the reference that uh, Jacob made about what happened in the Middle East was when in one region it tripled. We're talking a global quadrupling, and the places that are more exposed to these producers will be significantly worse. So yes, some degree of political unrest that is significantly worse than anything that we have seen with the Arab Spring is baked in now for the entirety of the Middle East. I'd also be a little bit worried about India and Pakistan. I'm horrified about what's going to happen in China, uh, because China's facing a complete food cycle collapse because of uh, the combination of African swine flu and now what's happening with the Russians. Okay, tell, say, say more about that. Sure. A, a, so, a complete food cycle crash, so is that what you said? Three years ago, the Chinese were infected with African swine fever, and they ended up killing, culling more of their hogs than the world's commercial farms have. They're now trying to rebuild it, but almost all the people who came in to rebuild have no experience in farming, and they have never gotten rid of African swine fever. So when you want to build up a herd of hogs that are in the tens of the millions, there isn't enough fodder. So what the Chinese have been doing is buying food from everywhere, even things that are wildly inappropriate, not just corn from Iowa, but broken rice from India and even food grade wheat, like croissant grade wheat from France, anything they can find. That's what's drawn everything down. Mm. And it's all going to be wasted because they never got rid of the disease in the first place. So the Chinese have decided that all that is left, the only thing they can guarantee is rice. So they've pulled all the phosphate off the market, phosphate that the rest of the world needs for other fertilizer. So we're going on to a mono food system in the world's single largest population with an economy that is dependent upon globalization and globalization is going away. There's no way this ends well for the Chinese. Wow. That's a, that's a big statement. So uh, this is a centrally controlled economy. They have, one would argue, more levers to pull than other areas in the world because they control every aspect of the economy. Is there no way they can cushion this? And is this a political risk 
It's absolutely for, a risk, and I'm not sure that they do have the tools anymore. They might have them on paper. They might actually have the policies in place. They may even have the infrastructure. But one of the things we've learned about G in the last year is he's become so paranoid and insular, and he's literally shot the messenger so many times that no one wants to bring him bad news. So I think the best example of that manifesting as policy is the power outages that started last May. Best guess, he didn't find out about them until September. We didn't get our first real policy to deal with them until two weeks ago. And if you've got a one-man shop, a cult of personality, and the bureaucrats are afraid to bring clashing policy priorities back to the boss, the whole thing breaks down. We're certainly seeing that with their COVID policy. And of course, it doesn't help that their vaccine doesn't really work. Talk about a destabilizing factor for the global economy. What can we imagine what the financial implications are from that? Finance is not my bailiwick, but I can hit it from the resource side, no problem. Yeah, but give me anything you got, Peter. Sure. So right now, what's going on in the Black Sea and in the Baltic Sea with Russian crude is we're not dealing with a sanctions situation. What we're dealing with is whenever a country shoots at civilian shipping, as Russia has done, every maritime uh, indemnity insurance for every vessel is null and void. So the vessels have to vacate. So we have seen probably three, three and a half million barrels of Ural's crude a day for the last three days just not get picked up. Yeah. It's not a boycott. It's not sanctions. It's its insurance companies and shippers and ship captains just refusing to go there at all. And as long as this is a hot war, this is where it's going to be. So you should take any crew that was coming out of Primorsk near Petersburg or Novorossiysk on the Black Sea and just write it off. The same thing is happening for the Tengiz Chevrolet project on the Caspian and Kazakhstan, not because the Kazakhs have joined sides here, but all that crew goes to Novorossiysk as well. No one's picking it up. So it's all backing up in the pipelines. The Russians only have 80 million barrels of storage. So at current rates, you're talking less than two months before they have to start shutting in production. Yeah. The last time they shut in production, it took them 30 years to bring it back online. So we're not talking here about Urals going away for a week or a month. We're talking years, taking the single largest crude grade in the world and just removing it. 5% drop. We haven't seen that in relative terms since World War II. Yeah. And if you are in Europe and you were the primary user of Urals, you now have to get crude somewhere else. The next best bet for them is West Africa because they're all former colonies and there's a security and political and economic relationship. They can do that, they can pull that off, but that means none of it's going to China. So China is kind of the last man in the kick line here for all the resources disruptions that are happening, all the energy disruptions, all the food disruptions. They gave Russia, from Russia's point of view, a blank check, and now they're having to cash it, and it is not going to end well. So we, I have so many questions. I'm going to try to get to them, and, and there are uh, many of them related. So thank, thank you for sending these in, and, and keep them coming. I'll get through as many as I can. Uh, Double C asking on our site, what are your thoughts about buying, and I, I know you're not going to respond on a buy or sell, but buying Russian assets now, natural oh, resource God, no, companies. No, no. Yeah, but, <laughs> but let me finish it because I think this is related to what you were just saying, and I'll rephrase it. Natural resource companies with hard assets at a bargain price seems enticing. How and when will it be possible to buy things like Gazprom and Rosneft? Just to, just to shift it to what you were just saying, this, this, is, this is not a short-term incident 
from what you're saying. If these things shut down um, and can't, this is a long road back if they shut in production. The companies that have left so far, Chevron, Exxon, Shell, BP, they were the ones who were responsible for bringing this stuff online. So even if nothing else went wrong and the oil kept flowing, you'd still be looking at a 50% reduction in output over the next few years because the Russians can't maintain this stuff. And every Russian bond and stock is going to go to zero, which is how things worked before globalization in a situation like this. There's plenty of historical precedent. Uh, the Russians are going to nationalize everything, and you're going to have to wait to start over with a fundamentally new government that has a different understanding of national authority and rule of law. So you have to wait for Putin to, to be removed from the scene one way or another, and the entire power cadre that he has spent the last 25 years building to also dissolve into something else. That is not a five-year bet. And a uh, question, uh, part two from Marvin uh, on the exchange. Are there repercussions from seizing oligarch properties? Uh, does this open up the ability for Russia, when they need to declare an emergency, to seize U e U.S. EU assets in there? And I would tack onto that. What's the support of Putin internally in Russia? I understand they're controlling the information, but certainly the oligarchs and others know what's going on. Yeah, so there's um, two groups of oligarchs. You've got the ones that stole from Russia in the 1990s. Putin tamed all of those in the first half of the 2000s. And some of them are now the ones that are saying things against the war from outside of Russia. Hmm. Uh, going after their assets is all well and good. They started out as crooks. Some of them kind of reformed themselves. That's a personal or political preference. I don't think there'd be any blowback from going after those guys. The second group are called the Silivarks. They're people who came up with Putin from the security apparatus who then have seized other things. They are absolutely economically incompetent. Um, and I heartily encourage everybody goes after those people's things. Um, if you have assets in your, Russia and you haven't written it down to zero, I'm kind of wondering what you're waiting for. Because no one's getting any of that out. Uh, as for U.S. or EU property in Europe, that's going to be so minor, it's not going to move the needle in terms of decision-making in any capital. Uh, Carl, uh, sorry, Ralph asking, rather, I'll get to Carl's in a moment. Will Russia's population see an accelerated decline due to war deaths and food famine? How, hit will, how hard will they be hit? And again, does that give us any insight into Putin's ability to survive this? Does he survive this? Oh, that's a great question. Um, whether Putin will survive, I don't know. People in this part of the world tend to slip in the shower and fall on some bullets from time to time. It's entirely possible that'll happen to him. I have no inside information on that side. Mm -hmm. he's, he's done a really good job of kind of consolidating his control of the system. So I don't think that's a high risk for him. Um, where was I going with this? Uh, the, the people, the Russian people, the support, right. you know, the harder okay. it gets so, for them. Russia is a very large food exporter. The big problem is that they do a lot of wheat, they do some potatoes, you know, the, the stuff you can do in cold climates, and they import everything else. So the import-export is over. So they're back to kind of a monochromatic, high-saturated fat diet. This is one of the reasons why Russia and China are duking it out for the world's worst demography. We know mm -hmm. based on the demographics, they will not survive this century. The question is how fast do they fade from the world? Um, I don't expect Russia to have meaningful food shortages in terms of starvation. There will always be a distribution issue. And with every company that deals with the logistics or tech that pulls out of Russia, the distribution becomes a little bit more old school. So growing the food, I'm not concerned about. 
distributing it in a way that keeps everybody alive, that's a different question. Uh, in terms of war deaths, even if this turns out to a really brutal, grinding World War II-style house-to-house obliteration, you're probably looking at fewer than one million Russians dying. That's a lot. It's all concentrated in the young age group, but it's all dudes. Mm. And as Russia has shown, you can lose 15% of your male population of an age bracket and still limp on. Mm. I think the bigger problem overall is that uh, is the outmigration. In the 1990s, based on whose numbers you're looking, the Russians lost between 2 and 10 million people to outward migration. We're now having a second wave. Everyone who grew up under Putin, who is now in their 20s, are seeing everything that they thought that Putin gave them in terms of stability and economic growth dissolve in literally days. And anyone who can get out is getting out, and they're taking their skills with them. And the Russian educational system really collapsed in mass back in the 80s and was never reformed. So these people, these people are irreplaceable. Wow, that's that's a really, really great point that 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 has really not been brought up yet. You know, early days, Carl asking on the RV site, how does Russia's invasion of Poland and the Baltics play out compared to its invasion of Ukraine? You said earlier, this is just the beginning. Would we expect, does it look the same? Is it, you know, the same amount of uh, civilian casualties and and how does that complicate things right with now that you're talking about say Poland sure so assuming for the moment that the Russian gambit to split off Turkey and Germany works because if it doesn't then NATO's a very different place but let's assume that that works in that specific scenario uh, the Americans would be unlikely to function because they need those bases in Turkey and Germany in order to forward project into these countries. However, if we get to that point, I think that the violence would be significantly worse and the damage to civilian infrastructure wouldn't be incidental. It would be very deliberate. Uh, the Russians have been agitating against these countries since the Soviet Union fell. And while there are a lot of people in Russia who see Ukrainians as brothers and sisters and cousins, there is no one in Russia who's like, oh, yeah, I just want to go and hug a pole. Uh, so just the obliteration level of artillery use that we would see in places like Warsaw and Riga, we, we really have not seen that anywhere in the world except Grozny since World War II. I mean, NATO has been trying to thread this needle and support, but stay on the sideline because Ukraine is not a NATO country. I mean, that argument falls to the wayside. Right. Now, the NATO policy, and I think this is will stick as long as the Ukraine war is going on, is to shove as many weapons and as much intelligence and maybe volunteers into Ukraine as possible so that the Russians have to fight for every bloody inch and then when they're done, they have to go back and do it all over because there's a partisan insurrection. Because as long as Russia is bleeding in Ukraine, they don't have a free hand to do what's next. And I think the, there's a recognition now in NATO capitals that this is not just about the separatist regions in Crimea and Kiev, that this is about going for the whole enchilada while the Russians still can. And so anything you can do to keep the Russians in Ukraine is a win. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
I want to I want to pull it back to um, a, a little bit to something that I think investors are trying to figure out. Um, as I, by the way, as we all digest just the massive implications of what we're talking about, I, I don't want to I don't want to shift gears quickly because what you're talking about is enormous, and I think we're all going to have to th- sort of think and ponder on it. But um, you know, we've been talking a lot about supply chains to get back to this idea of globalization kind of splintering. Um, w- they were already strained. This is going to add to that. I uh, just want to pull up Raul's, um Twitter feed again, if we could. And um, based on what happens, and this is this idea of the green agenda is really hotly debated right now, but this is where Raul comes down on it. Uh, the fate of the, uh, um, he says, if he thinks this could rather accelerate the green energy commitment, which I think is a, you know, not everyone agrees on, a global deal with Iran, a shift towards Morocco for manufacturing, Algeria for gas as regional further splinter into more regionalized supply chains that they can control easier, i.e. not Russia or China. Do you see this playing out? Is this going to permanently alter the supply chains if that wasn't already happening? I agree with about half of that. On supply chains, certainly, uh, between the shale revolution, COVID, populism, anti-trade, Trump, Biden, all of that combined, there is now not a manufacturing process in East Asia that can be done more cheaply than its equivalent in North America. You just have to build the industrial plant first. And I realize just uh, that takes years based on the sector. So the U.S. right now is going through its fastest industrialization ever even faster than what we did during World War II. And this is only going to accelerate that entire process as we basically draw a big thick line between the North American system and this China-centric system. And since the United States system has Mexico and has the consumption and China does not, that ends with China being removed as a significant manufacturing player, assuming it doesn't collapse on its own first. And so you're talking about... uh... When you say industrialization, you're talking about the rebuilding of factories, the rebuilding of supply chains. I'm assuming you mean energy. Do you think the uh, U.S. energy producers ramp back up again? We need to double roughly our industrial plant. In terms of energy, there's going to be a whole mix of things in there. As long as Biden does not end the U.S. I'm sorry, does not reinstate the U.S. energy export embargo. you're going to see a huge expansion of drilling because you're talking about feeding into a system that's at least 5 million barrels per day shy. If if prices stay under 170 in that environment, I would be shocked. But Biden is also a populist. There is no way that he or Trump or Obama would expose the American population to $200 oil if he didn't have to. And he doesn't have to because in the 2015 omnibus bill, the president has the ability to slam the export ban back into place at any time without needing to go to Congress first. So one way or another, the world is not just using losing Russian crude, it's also losing American crude. Do you expect that to happen, the export ban? This year. Wow, lot lot of lot of big so thoughts in this. I'm just I'm just absorbing it as we all as we all are, Peter. I, I just want to end. We're almost out of time, but um, you know, for for those who who want to read your book, there there is something that you focus on which is really important, and I just want to tease it. We're not going to have time to get into it all, but under on un, the undercurrent of all of what we're talking about is also demographics. You, you you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I think it's really important when you're also you know talking about China. Why is that important? How do you, how do you view this in terms of of 
who might be, I don't want to say a winner, but who might be better positioned sure. to deal with some of these massive changes that you're talking about? Let me give you the one minute version. People in their 40s and 50s are the savers. They're the high productive workers. They don't consume much. That's Europe. People in their 20s and the 30s, they're the low end workers. They're the consumers. That's maybe the Middle East. And people who are in their tens and their single digits, they're the children. They're the workers of tomorrow. No one has children except for the United States, Mexico, France, and New Zealand. United most States, Mexico, France, and New Zealand. Most, most advanced countries, and especially countries that are rapidly industrialized like China and Korea, they're already into that near retiree break bracket. So we know that we're facing population collapses in a number of major economies, first and foremost, China, because they stopped having kids in number 40 years ago. What about it's India? What about Africa? India is more like Mexico in that it's slowed down, but there's still decades left ahead of them. The problem with Africa is that they are such a huge importer of all the things that is necessary to maintain modern life, most notably agriculture, that if you break down global supply chains, a lot of these countries are going to dissolve. What about Latin America? Latin America is a pretty good spot. Uh, they've industrialized a little late and they've urbanized even later. But as a rule, they're kind of like a step behind Mexico in terms of the health of their demography. There, there's no country in Latin America that I'm overly concerned about, except for, of course, Venezuela, which has committed suicide. Peter, this was an amazing conversation. Uh, a lot of uh thought-provoking ideas in there that I think is going to give us fodder to to talk about and debate uh, for a long time um, and, and sort of gaming out what's happening in Ukraine. So grateful to have you on, although I, I have to say, I feel, I feel like I need a stiff drink after that conversation, <laughs> to be funny. honest with you. There's a lot to a lot to worry about in there. Um, but but you certainly opened our eyes. Um, and I hope everyone sort of jumps on the exchange and has a robust conversation around this, because I'm sure that there are going to be, you know, a spectrum of views. Um, and to the extent that we can get Peter back on to um, to have round two, we would love to do that. So, Peter, thank you so much. No problem. And we're going to be back the same time on Monday as we stay across this fast developing story. Uh, we have a special guest, Bill Browder, co-founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. I know many of you know him and I've heard him talking this week. He is certainly a man who knows firsthand what it is to go up against Putin uh, and the Russian system. So we look forward to that. Uh, be sure to stay uh, to tune in and join us and get your questions ready. In the meantime, as I said, the conversation continues on the exchange on our website. Stay well and have a great weekend. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.